following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 13 of our Morgoth's Ring discussion. Uh, so we are comp so it, it's I, I'm not sure that I've ever gone so completely off the rails <laughs> from my projections. I mean, it's not like I normally stick to it very faithfully, right? But um uh, but but anyway, this has been uh, extraordinary. But hey, it's all good, right? It's all good. Um, we were, um, we'll, see. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I knew when I was making the schedule for this class that I was making things up. But again, as I've said before, the thing about Morgoth's ring is like these jewels that are just, in my opinion, buried in the middle of this book. I mean, you get a bunch of stuff which, you know, in is in many ways let's be honest, kind of boring, right? Uh, uh, and I mean, that you know, a lot of the early stuff in this is, is kind of, you know, is kind of dense. It's kind of, it's kind of tough to get through. I'm not going to pretend. There's really interesting stuff there, as we saw. But, but you know, it's not, uh, not, not beach reading, exactly. And then, holy cow, in the middle of this, um, it's... Uh, Amazing. Uh, so now I know Kevin's like, wait, but all the theological stuff is here. I know, right? Yeah, I, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. And again, I'm not, I'm not apologizing. Like this is uh, uh, the, so tonight. The goal for tonight's discussion, we're just going to talk about the debate um, in Valinor, the the debate among the Valar about Finway and Muriel. It's going to be all 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 the divorce of Finway and Muriel all the time again tonight. Um, and uh, yeah, I know exactly, George. We haven't even gotten to the Athrobeth yet. But I mean, come on. There are so many levels that we get to talk about uh, tonight, right? Um, not only do we have what we've been looking at, that is, we're going to be continuing to look at uh, Tolkien's larger ideas, these theological and philosophical ideas that he's trying to work out. Um, that, uh, you know, and, and like not just theological, it's not sort of abstract theology, right? But the sort of world building ideas, because um, it's not just uh, about sort of how his universe works, as which is one of the things, of course, that he's working out, but like how elves work specifically and, uh, and what this all means. Uh, so we're going to continue looking at uh, Tolkien wrestling through those ideas. But, uh, and of course, as usual, we're going to be keeping our, our eye on the way that the story is changing, right? The development of the story over time and how Tolkien's ideas are moving forward. But there's more, right? Here also, we get this extra layer overlay where we, begin, where we are going to get to see him characterizing the Valar, some of which more than we've ever seen before, right? I mean, we get two... Valar who get speeches in this debate who never open their mouths at any other point in Tolkien's entire legendarium. We get a speech from Nienna and a speech from Vire for crying out loud. I mean, wow. So while we are in those sections, well, of course, we're going to keep our eye on the, you know, the development of the larger idea and uh, his considerate, his sort of wrestling with, the, with these, uh, with these things. Uh, but I also want to be thinking about what he's doing, what he's suggesting about the characters uh, of these uh, of these folks of of these Valar, and what we learn uh, from them. 
so yeah, yeah. And Kevin, yeah, do, do, I don't have high aspirations that we're going to get through the Athrobeth in a huge hurry, uh, especially coming at the end of all this other stuff, because I really think that the, uh, the Athrobeth is an amazing capstone on all of these contemplations and discussions that he's doing. So... Oh, man. Yes, Josiah, you're right. There are many things to ponder in the great statute of long debate. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Um, So this is all just part of me not apologizing for taking a long time to go through Morgoth's ring. (laughs) And like, I've... I have no idea, literally no clue how long it's going to take us to uh, uh, to discuss this, you know, to get through this book. But I totally don't care. This is uh, uh, this has been amazing. And um, I'm uh, I, I just I'm looking forward to this every week as we continue to move forward. One thing I wanted to note about that one uh, sort of announcement. Uh, so you'll notice that in the spirit of not having any idea how long we're going to be going, I've extended the schedule on the uh, GoToWebinar link uh, for those of you who are tuning in that way. Um, and you may have noticed that I left a gap. Uh, and let me explain that. So for the first, well, not the first couple, because I think July 1st. Yeah, July 1st is a Wednesday. We'll have class on July 1st, but the two Wednesdays after that, we're not going to be able to have class. We're gonna, I'm going to have to miss two weeks in a row. Unfortunately, we're going to have to take a little hiatus in the middle. Um, and the reason for that, it's a, well, it's a good reason. <laughs> in the short term, it's a painful reason. And that is I'm coming up on the 15th, actually, which would be normally a class night, uh, is... Um, is uh, the a major, hugely important uh, deadline uh, for Signum for a major multi-year project I have been doing at Signum. So um, it's uh, huge stuff going on here, and I'm going to be like absolutely to the wall uh, with that stuff uh, for the week leading up to that and then up through that week. So um, hopefully uh, the... I will be completing that project on the day of the 15th, and I figure to probably be <laughs> collapsed into sleep by normal class time. Uh, so anyway, that's so that's what's going to be happening uh, there. But we're going to um, uh, we're going to be uh, we'll, we'll come back, of course, after that. Uh, uh, and uh, and then we'll see. You know, <laughs> we'll see where we are and how much we have left at that point. Um, but um, anyway, that's. Um, that's that's I so I just wanted to warn you that that's coming. I'll, I'll keep you posted about that. But yeah, right now I'm planning. So the eighth, we won't have class on the eighth or fifteenth of July. But then we'll come back on the on the twenty second. So we'll be so we'll be good. All right. Anyway, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Tarlonial says I hope that project doesn't involve poetry or there's no hope of getting done by the deadline. No, no, no. Sadly. Uh, but Tarlonio, I can tell you, this project would be greatly improved by poetry. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind about that. Um, yeah, I only wish there were more poetic analysis involved <laughs> in this particular project. Yeah, Sharon says it's about as far from poetry as possible. I agree. It's almost the, the- theoretical uh, uh, opposition of poetry, actually. Um, Josiah says I should cast it into verse. Well, Josiah, that would be a great deal more pleasant than what I am having to cast it into. I can tell you that. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, so... Uh, while c- c- carrying on being all elusive and mysterious about this, it's one of those things I'm not allowed to talk about too much. Uh, but um, 
anyway, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, Sharon, you're right. I'm more likely to want to cast it into the flames at the end than I am to want to cast it into verse. Uh, but uh, anyhow, so we will. Um, uh, so we'll 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 get there. Uh, and this is going to be this is going to be a fun thing. So one while I'm doing announcements, one last announcement uh, before we go. This is a really cool thing. You guys will uh, remember. Um, that uh, uh, that I was announcing the opening of our Signum Path classes, which I wanted to remind you of. Uh, we have our classes coming up in July and August, but I, this is not just a reminder uh, that our classes are happening. Um, I wanted also to uh, announce that we're doing a special for the for the end of the summer. So we, we want people to be able to take advantage of the summertime to be able to uh, to take some Path classes and and you know develop some of your skills and stuff and. Uh, to use that really well there there it's not as unattractive a word as a lot of words that become popular in corporate circles for some reason the like nomenclature taste of the corporate world is just usually abysmal right but anyway to upskill yourself as they say in the corporate world um uh but anyway um uh so what we're doing here in the summertime is if you sign up for a path class in July, we will uh, also let you take an August class for free. So we're doing a, a buy one, get one free for our path classes in the second part of the summer here. Uh, so I really encourage you to take advantage of this. Go to the path page, uh, path.signumuniversity.org. And of course, you can look around at the at the different courses that we have and stuff. So you can, you know, like go to our go to our badges page and everything and, and you know, see all the different badges that we have and the different courses uh, which contribute uh, to those badges, uh, so you can kind of you know select uh, select there. Here we go. Sorry, my computer's being slow. Um, yeah, so we've got you know, our different badges, and you can see the different courses uh, that uh, fit within each badge. Um, so you could get for the price of one course, you could complete two thirds of a badge. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, so you can go through here, check out our courses, then just click on register, uh, and you will see the register. This is the registration page. Uh, for uh, all of our classes. So just sign up for any of our July classes. Uh, and then after you sign up for your July class, send us an email uh, to path.signum, sorry, path at signumu.org, um, path at signumu.org. Uh, and just let us know what July, what August class you'd like, and we will add it uh, for you there. So um, uh, anyway, um, yeah. Oh, Stephen, did you send an email to the path email? You should definitely send an email to the path uh, address if there's uh, some technical issues there. We'll definitely see if we can get you get you set up with that. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, I would definitely recommend uh, if any of you uh, know anybody. We are particularly excited to share the path program with folks. One of the things that one of the groups of people that I know have been sort of especially frustrated by the kind of challenge there, there are a lot of companies that have issues, right? With uh, who, who really can see uh, that a lot of the people who work there could really benefit from some of these foundational skills training courses that we're doing. And the people who are most keenly aware of this uh, are human resources folks, um, people who are in charge of training and stuff like that. But they very rarely have resources uh, for uh, being able to to train in these that is not only do they not um, often have that you know there aren't as many programs for uh, this kind of uh, training but also um, they're often their budgets are not very high for you know it's 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 one of the interesting things in the field you can see that lots of HR folks all 
acknowledge that uh, it's super, super important for people to improve their soft skills. And yet they don't have any budget like, you know, almost none of them allocate any budget for training in this uh, regard. So one of the ways in which we can help there uh, is to have just like a referral program if they want to if they can send people uh, to take path classes with us and then just reimburse uh, their employees directly. It's really low cost to the company uh, and it enables them to be able to have that as a resource for them. So if any of you know anybody who like, uh, you know, either the the HR folks at your work or uh, the, you know, if any of you know anyone who is uh, an HR person or a training director or uh, have any connections like that, by all means, send them to us, and and we would be ha- we'd be happy to let them take a class uh, uh, to try it out, and we would like to uh, definitely uh, connect with them because we think this would be a really really profitable resource for them. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so just wanted to 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 plug this and let everybody know about the special that we're running for the second half of the summer. Uh, again, sign up for a July class. You get an August class for free. Uh, and so that's going to be running through the end of this month, through the, through the end of the month of June before we start classes in July. So wanted to make sure everybody knew about that. All right. Um, very good. Um, oh, yeah, that's that's really great, uh, Cecilia. Why don't you send us an email about that and we'll 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 connect about that. Thanks for thanks for mentioning that. OK. Very good. Let us, without further ado, then jump into uh, the the. Uh, I guess it's kind of like a Supreme Court discussion, right? Uh, but uh, anyway, okay. So we start with the narrative. Now, the first thing to notice about the narrative: this is the the new revised narrative he has written uh, about the death of Muriel and about Finway's response to it. The thing that fascinates me most about this is actually are the passages that I have not included. And I didn't include them because they're straight out of the published Silmarillion. That is, when Christopher was choosing the passages to include in the published Silmarillion describing the death of Muriel and Finway's reaction to it and Finway's remarriage, he chose this version here. So what we're in the middle of reading... Um, is the is is what Christopher decided this is the uh authorized version essentially right this is the this is the 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 one that he chose to include uh in the published Silmarillion but he didn't include the whole thing right there were large bits that he left out all the stuff that is there in the published Silmarillion is from here but not all of the stuff that's in here made it into the published Silmarillion. So that's the very first thing that I would want to observe, which is interesting. Now, on the one hand, I'm not saying that I'm shocked that Christopher didn't include the whole judicial debate among the Valar in the published Silmarillion. I mean, I think it is absolutely awesome. And I'm like on the edge of my seat as I'm reading uh, (laughs) that passage. But I get it. Like, I'm not saying that he necessarily should have included that whole thing at full length within the text of the Silmarillion. It kind of seems like appendix material to me, but I kind of wish it had been appendix material. But whatever. Anyway, um, that I get. What is more surprising to me are the bits that he left out concerning the narrative, right, of Finway and of Muriel and especially of Indus, right? Indus, the second wife of Finway, we know nothing about. I mean, okay, I'm not saying we know nothing about her. We know who she is, right? We know who her family is and that kind of thing. But we're given nothing of her story. Like, 
what what about Finway's second wife? Why does Finway's second wife marry him? Right under these circumstances, what what was what was going on in Indus's head exactly? Right, we don't get any of that story at all in the published Silmarillion, but it's here, and that's really cool. So, but first, I want to um, uh, I want to go back uh, to uh, not, before we get to Indus, we'll get there in a little bit. Um, I want to go back to Finway because we'll remember that I was laughing a lot at Finway's expense the, in the previous draft of this story uh, in which he did not come off looking particularly good, right? Where he was uh, essentially initiating the divorce, right? And uh, and seemed like he was, I mean, again, he was, a, he was bereaved and there's nothing funny about that. Um, but just the way in which he was seemed to be pretty quick to saying, um, you know, like to, to want to break it off with his dead wife uh, and uh, honey, you don't mind staying in Mandos? That, that's a dear. Thanks very much, because I'd quite like to uh, to remarry and find someone else who's willing to bear me children. It, it was there was there was a lot that seemed to not come across um, uh, super well. I, I, I definitely don't think Finway really covered himself in glory in that previous draft, right? So here's Tolkien's second go at it, and in my opinion, Finway comes across a lot better this time around. Uh, okay. Finway's grief was great, and he went often to the gardens of Lorien, and sitting beneath the silver willows beside the body of his wife, he called her by her names. But it was of no avail, and he alone in all the blessed realm was bereaved and sorrowful. After a while he went to Lorien no more, for it did but increase his grief. All his love he gave to his son, for Feanaro was like his mother in voice and countenance, and Finway was to him both father and mother, and there was a double bond of love upon their hearts. Yet Finway was not content, being young and eager, and desiring to have more children to bring mirth into his house. He spoke, therefore, to Manway, changed to, When, therefore, ten years had passed, he spoke to Manway, saying, Lord, behold, I am bereaved and solitary. Alone among the Eldar I have no wife, and must hope for no sons save one, and no daughter. Must I remain ever thus? For I believe not that Muriel will return again, changed to, For my heart warns me that Muriel will not return again from the house of Vire, while Arda lasts. Is there not healing of grief in Amon? Then Manway took pity upon Finway, and he considered his plea, and when Mandos had spoken his doom as has been recorded, Manway called Finway to him and said, Thou hast heard the doom that has been declared. If Muriel thy wife will not return and releases thee, your union is dissolved, and thou hast leave to take another wife. <clears throat> okay. Um, so... First of all, notice, uh, I, oh, sorry, one very, very small point I want to make, a grammatical point I want to make before we talk about anything else. Notice that last sentence. If Muriel, thy wife, will not return and release and releases thee, your union is dissolved, and thou hast leave to take another wife. Notice the shift between thou and you there, right? That's going to be important later. Um, thou is the second person singular. You is the second person plural, and the second person plural, which is also used in formal language, right? Um, uh, so if Finway were, uh, Finway addressing Manway in the second person, 
would probably not use thee and thou. He would say you to Manway probably because he's Manway, right? Um, whereas Manway speaking to him calls him thou, except when he says your union is dissolved because it's plural, right? He's not, he doesn't say thy union is dissolved. Your union, you and Muriel's union is dissolved. Okay, so just a, a very quick, and then he shifts back to thou immediately. Thou hast leave to take another wife, right? Um, uh, so notice the precision with which Tolkien is shifting between thou and you there. Uh, and I just want to make sure that everybody understands the rules for how that works. This will be important later. Okay, um, uh, now, with that done, um, notice the way... We can not only see the shift in Tolkien's depiction of Finway here um, from the previous version, if the, for those of us who retain a really detailed memory of the ver of the previous version, uh, and it's been so many weeks now, my own memory of it is becoming fuzzy. But um, uh, but still, we can see even within the changes in this draft, all right, in this paragraph, that is to say, um, we can see the shift. Right, look at the. Um, look at the two changes that Christopher Tolkien has included in the text, right? He spoke, therefore, to Manway, changed to when, therefore, 10 years had passed, he spoke to Manway, right? See the, the direction in which that changes? Um, instead of just having him speak up to Manway and be like, hey, <laughs> I want a new wife over here, right? He, he decides to come in again on that sentence and lead by emphasizing the amount of time. He's been grieving for 10 valiant years, which is a century of the sun, right? For a hundred years of our time, Finway has been mourning for Muriel already. And he emphasizes that first. This is not Finway, you know, like when his wife is well, I was about to say when his wife's body is barely cold, except it kind of does it even get cold. I'm not sure that it does under the weird circumstances of the preservation of her body. But anyway, um, her fea is not, you know, it's it's not like, you know, her her fea is is barely out of sight, you know, when he's turning around. He, you know, Tolkien chooses to emphasize. No, no, no. He's been grieving for a long time. Right. So, again, we can see uh, the, the sort of the shift in emphasis there. And then, um, similarly, uh, towards the end of that paragraph, must I remain uh, ever thus? For I believe not that Muriel will return again. Change to, for my heart warns me that Muriel will not return again from the house. So notice it, the, the shift is in the direction of him speaking less forthrightly, right? Um, and uh, it's not about... It's not about him. It's not an I statement anymore, right? I don't think Muriel's coming back. So let me marry again, right? Instead, he says, my heart warns me that Muriel will not return again, right? And because I have this warning in my, I, 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 I believe because, you know, the, say he, he distances it, he distances Finway, right, from that and saying, like, Finway just, he has a foreboding. Over the hundred years of the sun, right, of the, 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 the ten valiant years that he's been mourning, his heart has been cautioning him that his wife isn't coming back, right? And so, again, having first changed it to emphasize the amount of time he's been grieving, he then also changes it again to emphasize the effect of that grieving time, right? In the, in the, you know, the century of the sun in which I've been grieving, um, I have, my, my heart has been telling me, warning me that my grieving is in vain. She's not going to return. 
I'm not ever going to see Muriel again. Our marriage is done, right? And therefore, he doesn't say, so, you know, I got somebody else on on the line over here. You know, do you mind if I do? No, he says, is there not healing of grief in Amman? And it puts Finway in a completely different context, right? Now, instead of, you know, this sort of sketchy, slightly heartless sounding guy, right, who was just all about finding a fertile second wife. um, Now, instead, we find somebody who is not only far more of an object of compassion, right? I'm mourning. I've been mourning, right, for 10 valiant years. And my heart warns me that my mourning will never end, right? This... I am, I, I appear to be doomed to it, continual bereavement for the whole rest of the history of Arda. And that doesn't seem, is there not healing of grief in Amman? Shall I be doomed in Amman? Here where this is supposed to be paradise, right? Everything's supposed to be good here? So shouldn't I, I mean... Isn't it possible to find healing here? And that's a much better question, right? That's a much better question than, you know, the, 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 like, can I get any more kids over here? Right? Give me, am I only? I mean, if he had stopped with the, um, you know, um, alone among the Eldar, I have no wife and must hope for no son save one. I mean, okay. Um, I don't think you're the, I doubt you're the only one who doesn't have a spouse. And I, you know, and we know that not having very many kids is fairly common, in fact. So anyway, like I said, that, um, um, that alone doesn't, um, doesn't really seem to be a strong argument. But again, this isn't George. I exactly agree with you. Um, what is being emphasized is his sorrow here, right? This is the sorrow of somebody who is really seeking healing. And that is, so like, I'm not inclined to laugh at Finway here as I was before, right? Before it kind of came off and I thought it was a little bit funny, but this definitely does not. Um, yeah. And I, and Chris, I agree with you. Um, the, um, my heart warns me thing gives it almost an air of, of foresight, Right. Um, uh, the, the, the shift, as Chris says, from I believe not that Muriel uh, uh, to my heart warns me that Muriel. Right. Um, is uh, Chris says the difference between personal belief and om- something almost like divinely gifted foresight. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's like he has been uh, it has been, you know, vouchsafed to him that she is not going to return. Um, and so there is a kind of authority there, but there's also a gentleness there. I believe not. I mean, that's, that just sounds like skepticism, right? Um, you know, maybe she's going to come back, but I don't believe it, right? I mean, that sounds like one of the stages of grief, honestly, right? But my heart warns me that Muriel will not return again. Sounds different, right? And so I, I think that we can see the changes that he's making, and this is really... Uh, this is really interesting. Notice also, um, 
now it still roots it ultimately the the pivot phrase in the narrative there is still yet Finway was not content being young and eager right so we still have the discontent of Finway I don't think that he is um, it's it's still entirely he's still entirely free from that um, desire which could easily seem like a selfish desire. Uh, I, I, we can still see, I think, some vestiges of that there. Um, but uh, but it certainly, I think, as a whole, uh, comes out very, very much differently. Um, and the way that Manway declares the doom now is also different. When he's not working out the doom as he goes along, but already knows the doom, and is now reshaping the narrative around the doom already established, um, he... Uh, he now says, Manway, that is, if Muriel, thy wife, will not return, your union is dissolved and thou hast leave. Right. So this is not like take it up with your dead wife. And, you know, this is not a proposition that's being put to Muriel. Right. Especially in the context of that, uh, this, that, as Chris was pointing out, the sort of still small voice thing that's going on there with the his heart warning him. Right. Manway is basically saying, if you're right. You know, if it does turn out to be true that Muriel does not choose to return, right? If she releases thee, if she won't return, then your union is dissolved. And this no longer sounds like a favor to Finway, right? But rather an act of justice. If she does, if she is going to, if, if as your heart is warning you, she is indeed on her own side, right off her own bat, uh, going to choose perpetual estrangement from you, then your union is dissolved and thou hast leave to take, an, to take another wife. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Chris, I, I agree. This is another thing that uh, very greatly disc- decreases the comedic value of this incident is the fact that it does seem clear that if Muriel were to have changed her mind, if Muriel were to have returned, um, that he would have welcomed her with joy, that that would have been what he most wanted. Unlike, the, again, the last time where it sort of seems like it, it they, there many of the things in the way that it was phrased made it sound like this was like a, a relief for both of them, right? Um, <laughs> death didn't come too soon for either one of them, as far as either one of them were concerned. And that was one of the things that I about funny about it um but i agree we don't get that now right we see that prime his prime and it's you know back to as george was saying it's about his sorrow first and foremost right um yeah yeah um and good julie you're absolutely right that in this in this context now with the way that it's being presented now it's not so much a doom as a confirmation of choices right um yeah this is not any more Muriel being like litigated into a corner, which it kind of sounded like before, right? Um, but rather just the Valar, um, you know, what affirming the choices that she is making, right? And the choice, you know, the the you know, acknowledging, wanting to acknowledge and assuage the grief of Finway, uh, respecting the choice of Muriel, and then therefore leaving Finway and. Wife number two, uh, future wife number two, free to make their own their own choices. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so let's 
you got a few more. So can now we get more about Muriel as well, right? In fact, we get dialogue from Muriel in Mandos. It is said that Muriel answered Mandos, saying, I came hither to escape from the body, and I do not desire ever to return to it. My life is gone out into Feanaro, my son. This gift I have given to him whom I loved, and I can give no more. Beyond Arda this may be healed, but not within it. Then Mandos adjudged her innocent, deeming that she had died under a necessity too great for her to withstand. Therefore her choice was permitted, and she was left in peace, and after ten years the doom of disunion was spoken. In the year following, change two, and after three years more, Finway took as second spouse Indis the Fair, and she was in all ways unlike Muriel. Okay, again, notice he's even extending the doesn't want to make it look like, you know, Finway's turning around on a, on a, you know, on a dot and, uh, uh, you know, finding his second wife instantly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, and keep in mind, it's been 10 years, right? So he grieves for 10 years. And then I think there's a second 10 years in there, right? After 10 years, the doom of disunion was spoken. So 10 years after that initial exchange. So first was the grieving of 10 years, then a further 10 years of waiting while like she was, she was given that Muriel was given that 10 years in Mandos. Right. And then at the end of the 10 years, she's like, Nope, I'm good. I'm staying. Right. And then three more years. So it's 23 valiant years between Muriel's death and Finway's remarriage. Right. 230 years of the sun pass by. Uh, so it certainly sounds less um, scandalous, right, uh, for Finway. Um, yeah. Um, oh, Tomas, I am almost certain that Indus the Fair means uh, that she's blonde. Uh, probably also gorgeous, but I blonde, I think primarily is what is being indicated there. We've talked about this before that the, those, that, uh, the word fair can also mean, of course, in, in this context, uh, uh, of course it could be tempting to see it in a judicial sense, like fair in the sense of, uh, treating everybody equally. Um, but the two ways in which the word fair are, are most commonly used about Tolkien to describe people are either a light, light in coloring or b. Uh, beautiful or both, right? And we've had some talk about this in uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's a a word that we have uh, on our uh, on our asterisk list uh, that we're kind of tracing as we go through the text. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Sharon asks, "Is this divorce and remarriage, or is Finway widowed and remarries?" Yes, it's both, right? Because you can't you can't have divorce without re- without without widowhood, right? You can't have divorce without death, but death alone isn't enough. You've got to have death and divorce. So he is, he is both widowed and divorced essentially. Um, uh, (laughs) Chris is pointing out that yes, this makes Galadriel perilously blonde, which totally true, right? Absolutely fits. (laughs) <laughs> perilously blonde uh, is um, um, that would make a really good like Twitter handle, wouldn't it? Um, uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> if I were Coadriel, that would be my I would I would be tempted to have my Twitter account be at perilously blonde. Um, 
but um anyway yeah um yeah, so Bricktails, the, the 10 years was the term described in the whole legal f framework from the earlier draft, yes. And so that's being applied again. But again, I believe it's being applied after the thing was being raised, right? So Finway, after 10 years of mourning, has cried out in his sorrow, right? Is there not healing in Amon? And they're like, yeah, good point, Finway, right? So that's when, and then that's when Muriel is given the choice and she says, no, I want to stay. And I, so that's why I think the 10 years is an additional 10 years um, because they are following the thing. It's not going to be like, Oh, Hey, it's been 10 years. So now decide once and for all now in this moment. And it's, and you, and there's no backseas. Remember there's backseas for 10 years. So I think they have to give her, I, I think they are giving her that 10 years. Exactly. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carita thinks that perilously blonde is a is a, a a shade that she probably dyed her hair at one point. That's another perilously blonde would be also be a good name for a a, a hair color, wouldn't it? Um, okay. Yeah. All right. So now. Um, Let's see. Somebody else had a thing before. Yes, uh, George. I agree. once again I agree that especially in the context of Finn of the emphasis on Finway's grief, uh, right on his um, um, on his the sorrow that we could see from him so much more clearly in this version of it previously. That first sentence is kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? Muriel answered Mando, saying, I came hither to escape from the body, and I do not desire ever to return to it. And so, George, I agree. You know, we remember Finway sitting next to the body, the inert body of Muriel in Lorien, calling her by her many names uh, and her not responding. And then meanwhile, here she is in Mando saying, I came hither to escape from the body, and I do not desire ever to return to it. Um, it is. It is heartbreaking. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. Um, what do we do with Muriel's statement? So one of the questions that we've had was, how do we understand Muriel's condition? Muriel's, you know, like what's on Muriel's death certificate exactly. And in particular, we, you know, we're sort of wondering, is this a red flag about Feanor from day one? Like, do we imagine Feanor, the vampire child, sucking the life of his mother and uh, leaving her an empty husk when he's born? Um, uh, or do we instead imagine this to be a gift that she's given him? And that question, Muriel emphatically answers in this version, right? The, this gift I have given to him whom I loved, and I can give no more. Beyond Arda this may be healed, but not within it. So I want to take a second to understand the significance of her death, especially since, remember, we were just looking at the passage back in the, in the, uh, the Q&A section, right? Um, with uh, the in which I think the answers were being given, or at least were like the you know, first the dooms, the rather long and uh, winding um, uh, dooms of Mandos there, and uh, and then the commentaries upon them with the Q and A, uh, and in that context, remember we were just looking at uh, the 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 apportioning of guilt to the dead, 
And in particular, we were told that it's like, if you want to be reborn, it's a black mark against you if you left your body voluntarily, right? If you weren't forced out of it. I mean, it's one thing, you know, if your body gets chopped up into bits, um, okay, then your Faya loses track of it and it's, you know, nobody could be blamed for that. Um, but if something like grief or sorrow caused you to abandon your body, if you just vacated your Hroa, um, then you were very low on the rebirth list after there's a lot of uh, correction that needs to be done uh, for your fea, um in order for you to go back. I mean, there's, there's, there's guilt attached with that. Um, Mandos does not approve of that. It is, it is, elves are supposed to be. Um, remember that coherence between fea and Roa is important, is, is an essential element of what it means to be one of the Eldar. Um, so to an Eldar who throws up his or her hands and says, I can't, I can't hack this whole body thing anymore. I'm going voluntarily to death, even if there's cause, right? Even if there is grief, even if there is sorrow, still it's, Mandos was, and in that Q&A, it was suggested that's still a bad look and, it, and a sign that instruction and comfort needs to be given to that person. Um, and again, they are much less likely to be sent to be granted a second body if they abandon the first. So one of the corollaries of that earlier discussion appeared to be Muriel is to blame because she she's the first one, right? She's the first of the Eldar to just give up on her body. Um, so I am interested to see the way that she's being treated here. Um, because, the, so the first and most noteworthy thing that I see here is that, at least in her own mind and in her own words here, her actions are being treated something, well, I don't know if heroic is quite the right way to say it. That might be too much. But it certainly seems a good thing. I mean, this gift I have given to him whom I loved and I can give no more. Now, notice... Him whom I loved. That's an ambiguous phrase. Who? Feanor or Finway? Um, I think she means Finway. Him whom I loved. I gave my husband a gift and I can give no more. I can't give anything more. So I, I, there's no way I could have more children. There's no way I can even continue in my marriage with him. There's no more left of me to give. Um, I gave it all. In Feanor, my son. Um, so, therefore, I am going to be, I'm out, right? I need healing. Um, I think that that's directed to Finway, but of course it could also be um, connected to Feanor. And yes, both Matt and Carita are saying, past tense, loved, past tense, ouch. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, um, that's very interesting, right? Um, has Fan has Finway done something to lose her love? You know, she doesn't say so. She makes no accusations. I can't, and it's hard to understand how that could be Finway's fault. Like, I mean, he didn't. Um, this wasn't his idea. That is the the putting forth of all of her life into Feanaro. Um, he didn't, did he? I mean, he didn't ask her to do that. Um, and 
what's more, she doesn't suggest that it was voluntary. If we're right that, that the him whom I loved is Finway in that sentence, then she's characterizing Feanor and the abundant, you know, the uh, extra life that she has given to Feanor, Feanor uh, as, um, as he was born or as he's being, you know, nurtured. Um, if she's characterizing that as a gift, it's kind of a retroactive thing, right? She doesn't, um, she doesn't say, that she chose it, right? She says, my life is gone out into Feanaro. That's just like a description of fact. She doesn't ascribe to herself the choice in that. Right? She doesn't say, I sent my life out into Feanaro, my son. I poured myself into Feanaro, my son. I chose this, in other words. She doesn't say that. My life is gone out, statement of objective fact. That's what happened. My life has gone out into Feanaro, my son. And then when she says beyond Arda, this may be healed, um, but not within it. She too is saying, is there not healing in Amon? And her answer is, nope, not for me. I know that for sure. I, but I am on empty, right? I, I mean, I am, I have suffered a kind of diminution, right, that I can't recover from. There's not enough of my fayat left for my body, essentially, is what she seems to be saying, right? There's something happened to her that needs healing. We know what happened to Finway that needs healing, right? Bereavement. He's, he, he's, he's grieved for the loss of his wife. Um, what happened to Muriel? That needs healing. I don't know. I don't know. I I, uh, I think that she is... So James is saying that he thinks that the gift refers back to the previous antecedent, my life, right? My life has gone out into Feanor, my son, this gift I have given to him, uh, whom I loved. Uh, so it is... Po I do think it's possible to read that alluding to Feanor rather than to Finway. I do think that that's possible. And certainly I do think that she is characterizing, I think that my, this gift, I think, can be read in both ways. The life that she gave to her son Feanor is her gift to her son. The son that she gave her life to is her gift to her husband, right? Both of those things seem to me to be perfectly within the spirit of what Muriel seems to be saying here, as far as I can see. Right. And now, Michael, I agree with you. Michael is objecting to the idea that she is um, that she doesn't love Finway anymore. Um, uh, Michael's saying that if she had said him whom I had loved, that would be the death knell. Right. Um, that would indicate that her loving was complete at a point in the past and no longer was happening anymore. Right. Loved. It might well be. Um, I, you know, that doesn't necessarily prove that she doesn't anymore. Um, uh, just that she is referring to her life in the past, which will never return now, right? So she can't exactly talk about that in the present tense because she is sundered from him now and knows that she's going to need to remain sundered. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. And George is wondering if loved there could mean that there's no love left in her now, right? She's she 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 can't give anymore. Um, I I think that that's very probable reading of that. Um, both Feanor and Finway, she loved, right? And she gave to both of them, but she can't. She has nothing left. Again, she appears to be characterizing herself as an empty vessel, right? And she, there's nothing she can pour out anymore to anyone. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, James, that in as much as it does, if, if it does, or even if it does partially relate to Feanor, um, this is also a heartbreaking statement to make, given um, what we have learned about the usual role of motherhood, the nurturing of the child, right? It's not just um, the mother's, you know, role in giving of her fea to uh, the child, right? In helping to nurture and, and grow the child and uh, bless the child through its youth, Um is not uh, is not restricted to the time of pregnancy, right? And she's she's losing that. Fanor is losing that. Um, so I agree that I, I that is that does seem to me to be implicit in that as well. But again, I think this then comes back to what George was suggesting about um, uh, she can give no more, right? That she she can't she can't. It's she doesn't have the resources anymore to do to fill, fulfill the role of wife or mother, right? She, uh, she, she, she can't, I, I want to say she physically can, but it's not about the physical, right? She spiritually can't, uh, give it anymore. Um, so how, how do we understand that? I'm not sure I do understand it really. Um, if it's not her choice, whose choice was it? Feanor's choice or Iluvatar's choice? Those seem to be the two options, right? Um, and I'm not sure what's being suggested here. I can't imagine it's Feanor's choice. I mean, Feanor's a lot of things, but I'm not necessarily really willing to read back, you know, vampiric malice to him in the womb. Uh, that just doesn't seem right. Um, uh so this was a doom from Iluvatar, right? That she was chosen to bear Feanor and it took all that she had to offer. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tomas is saying this does open up the possibility that Fanor grows up feeling rejected by his mom um, because she chose, you know, she she's not there for him. Right. Um, so that, you know, he's likely to have grown up with mommy issues as well as daddy issues. Right. With the second marriage thing um, uh, that the implications of the death of his mother, um, you know, uh I mean, anytime a child loses a parent, of course, there are always issues. And remember, Tolkien was one of them, right? You know, Tolkien's lost his father. You know, 
he wasn't much older than Feanor when he lost his father uh, and he lost his mother still in his youth, right? So the death of a parent, Tolkien knows about this, right? Um, you know, I don't, so I can't speak of it uh, with the same kind of confidence. But I mean, I know from friends and family that it's, it's, you know, it's very natural, of course, to go through cycles of blaming yourself for the death of your uh, parent, of blaming your parent for the death, you know, f- uh, for not being there for you. And these are very natural uh, things for a child to go through, right? But they're both of them more potentially literally true, literally relevant here, right? I mean, what if you're Fanor? I mean, again, it's natural for a child to go through phases where they feel like it's my fault that my mom died. Well, it kind of was, right? Uh, and it's natural for a child to think, you know, to be angry at mom for abandoning me, right? And leaving me alone, except she kind of did, right? I mean, again, in, in a, in a different, those things are truer for Feanor in the elder in context that we've been learning, right, than they would be. And that's really interesting. And so, you know, on the, um, this is another thing that I think it's important for us to remember here. If we want to back up and ask the question, why, why all of this? I mean, we've kind of talked about this before a little bit, right? But like, why is Tolkien spending so much time on the question of the death of Muriel and the remarriage of Finway? Right. I mean, there is so much here. Um, and it's one of those things which I sort of I think that. This would be an interesting study. Go to a bunch of people who have read the Silmarillion, but not read the history of Middle Earth. Right. They've, so they've, they've not read this book at all really any of them, but they've read the Silmarillion and ask them, okay, of all of the events, there's one event that is described in the Quenta Silmarillion, which Tolkien in revising it is going to expand, is going to inspire like chapters and chapters worth of material. Guess which one it is. And I would guess that very, very few people would guess the death of Muriel and the remarriage of Finway, right? I, I, I doubt that would be too high on many people's list of the thing that, um, <laughs> you know, that really gripped him uh, when going back to the Silmarillion. So, why? So you know, we've talked about, of course, all of these issues with you know, the way that it has prompted him to develop what elvish marriage was, which has in turn prompted him to develop the whole metaphysics of the Thea and the Roa. And I mean, so there, there are ways in which it makes sense just for that reason, right? But I'm wondering now if this isn't part of it too. Um, and I'm not trying to just bring it back to Tolkien's biography and his own experience of bereavement when his mother died and, and even his memories of growing up without a father. Um, but I also can't think that those are wholly irrelevant in this kind of an instance, right? That is, is, is there, are there ways in which this question of Feanor, right? And what happens, what does this mean for Feanor? You know, therefore kind of become more, um, uh, more pressing, right? More urgent, more interesting to him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Interesting. Uh, Alyssa says she was just looking up the etymology of the word widow, uh, and it comes from an Indo-European root meaning empty, she says. I wonder if Tolkien was aware of that and developed the concept of Finway, Muriel, and Feanor's variations on spiritual emptiness uh, because of the linguistic story. Uh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd, Alyssa, you're thinking about that with talking, you know, talking about Muriel as an empty uh, vessel here, right? In a sense, it's she. So she, she, the one who's like actually been widowed in some way. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Kit, I also agree with you there. We could also consider it highly relevant to Tolkien's the the importance that Tolkien placed on on his own fatherhood as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he certainly would have been uh, thinking about uh, thinking about that as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, um, uh, um, yeah. Stephen says, "I never thought of Fanor this way before. Now that I see him, I do pity him." Yeah, exactly. Well, well said, Stephen. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, now I want to come back to another point that you guys now you'll notice I've not resolved some of those questions I was asking. Yep, because I don't really know the answer. But anyway, we also need to save some to look at the uh, 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 save some time to look at the Valar discussing this question, right? Because they'll have lots of opinions uh, that'll get us back to these questions again. Um, but first, before we leave this slide, um, a point that Michael was just making and Zach was making earlier on um, was. The poignancy and significance of her statement, beyond Arda, this may be healed. What a phenomenally interesting statement, right? Um, is Muriel the first elf ever to use the phrase beyond Arda? What is this beyond Arda of which you speak, right? What happens to elves beyond Arda? Nobody knows, right? Beyond Arda, this may be healed, but not within it absolutely fascinating, right? Um, I don't know how to read that. I could read that as a sign of despair, right? I, you know, maybe outside of Arda this could be healed, but within it it's not, and I'm tied within it, so there's no hope for me. I could read it like that. I could also read it as a sign of truly remarkable hope, right? Hope without evidence at all that Although we know that the life of the Eldar is co is you know coterminous with Arda, will 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 last as long as Arda lasts. Muriel could be seen to be making a statement of faith here, right? That there is heal healing even beyond Arda, right? I could see it as either one. I could see it as a as a as a massive statement of Estelle Caden exactly, or I could see it as a an element. A, 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 I could see it as despair, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Sharon, you are so right. Um, what a great paper that would be for somebody to write a paper on widowhood in Elven, in, uh, in Elvish culture, uh, thinking about Muriel, thinking about Arwen, right? Oh man. Yeah. Um, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Kevin is wondering if this is a foretelling of the revelations in the Athrobeth. I'm wondering if some of that stuff is already stirring here, Kevin. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, cool, cool. 
Oh, I missed that one. Chris says there was a paper similar to that at Middlemoot last year. Yeah, I missed. I missed. I think I missed that one. I went to. I. I. I did. Middlemoot last year was one of those cruel regional moots where I had to choose which panel to go to, and I think I missed that one. About female grief. Yes, I did miss that one. Oh, cool. Anyway, um, we will keep thinking more about Muriel, but this is a fascinating glimpse. Speaking of fascinating glimpses, enter Indus as an actual character. Here's that long passage that Christopher did not include in the Silmarillion. She loved Finway dearly, for her heart had turned to him long before, while the people of Ingwe still dwelt, dwelt still with the Noldor in Tuna. It's a little bit scandalous. In those days, she had looked upon the Lord of the Noldor, dark-haired and white-browed, eager of face and thoughtful-eyed, and he seemed to her fairest and noblest among the Eldar, and his voice and mastery of words delighted her. Therefore, she remained unwedded when her people departed to Valinor, and she walked often alone in the fields and friths of the Valar, turning her thought to things that grew un that grow untended. Changed to filling them with music. But it came to pass that Ingwe, hearing of the strange grief of Finwe, and desiring to lift up his heart and withdraw him from vain mourning in Lorien, sent messages bidding him to leave Tuna for a while, and the reminders of his loss, and to come and dwell in the light of the trees. This message Finwe did not answer, until after the doom of Mandos was spoken, but then, deeming that he must seek to build his life anew, and that the bidding of Ingwe was wise, he arose and went to the house of Ingwe upon the west of Mount Oyolose. His coming was unlooked for, but welcome. And when Indus saw Finwe climbing the paths of the mountain, and the light of Laurelin was behind him as a glory, without forethought she sang suddenly in great joy, and her voice went up as the song of a, of a Lyrilin in the sky. That's a lark. And when Finwe heard that song falling from above, he looked up and saw Indus in the golden light, and he knew that in that moment that she loved him and had long done so. Then his heart turned at last to her, and he be believed that this chance, as it seemed, had been granted for the comfort of them both. Behold, he said, there is indeed healing of grief in Amman. That's really beautiful, right? That's a really beautiful. I I really like that story. I I mean, again, it's it's the 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 point at the beginning is kind of interesting, right? Um, the business about her falling in love with him while he's still married to Muriel, right? And Muriel is still alive. Um, now again, she doesn't do anything scandalous. Um, but remember, remember. That passage earlier on in the Laws and Customs, uh, when he Tolkien was describing uh, the loves and the loves that go astray, right? Um, it's very unusual for any like um, illicit sexual escapades to happen among the elves, right? But there is unrequited love, right? Unrequited love does happen. Um, uh, so, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's, um, uh, we were told at the time in the laws and customs that that sort of thing, that that sort of thing puzzled the Valar, right? 
they couldn't understand grief like this. Why should this be? Why should the heart, you know, the 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 fea of one elf be set upon another and it not be reciprocated? I mean, if the idea of unrequited love and that one person's affections are not reciprocated by another seems like a totally normal state of affairs uh, to us, but it did not to the Valar, right? Um, and this was believed to be a sign of the marring of Arda, right? Um, it's just, that's clearly not right. It's not how things were supposed to be. Um, and so it's it was kind of a cloud on them, right? So Indus's love initially falls within the context of that kind of a, of a clouding, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, but no, Chris, you're right. You're right about, uh, that this is an interesting, well, okay. So Chris, I was about to call it an interesting, uh, deviation from the idea that the fair of married couples were often drawn to each other, even as children. Right. Um, that there was a, like a death predestined soulmates kind of thing going on with most elvish married couples. Um, but it never says all. So at first, Chris, I, I also was tempted to say, well, Indus's love for Finway would appear to be uh, uh, a deviation, like a, yeah, a deviation from that trend. Right. But now I'm wondering if it's not a variation, in fact, on that trend. Right. Because, in fact, they are destined to be married. Um, not right then. And if she'd acted on it right away, it'd have been totally inappropriate and absolutely scandalous. But Indus played it exactly right. Right. Her love for Finway was not sketchy. Right. She had a love for him, which was a, a, a totally spontaneous response to him. And she was, she didn't, you know, she didn't play the, how you know the home wrecker right she didn't try you know she like went away and she was sad but even in her sadness she's um she you know walking alone in the fields and friths of the valar filling them with music yeah karita i agree with you turning her thought to things that grow untended was perhaps a bit on the nose uh, i wonder if tolkien thought that too when he when he deleted that phrase um uh but anyway um uh, it's this brings me back, uh, Chris, again, thinking about this as, as not a deviation, but even perhaps a variation of that idea, of the soulmate's idea. Um, you know, Finway, of course, had no idea that Indus was his secondary soulmate, right? Uh, because he was still married to Muriel at the time and apparently quite happy that, there, right? Um, but when she hears of his grief, her you know, love returns and responds. Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, I find the end of that, the description of him walking up and her spontaneous song of joy and, uh, and his joy, uh, in response, his heart turned at last to her. Um, you know, so it's not like he was making eyes at her, you know, before his wife died or anything like that. Or, you know, earlier on when she was still living in uh, in uh, Tyrion. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, it's I think this is quite beautiful. But again, the thing that I was saying that I, I'm reminded of is the question of who made the call? Who emptied Muriel's cup, 
right? If it wasn't her, if she didn't voluntarily, if, if it wasn't a result of her own choice, and what she said in that previous slide did not at all sound like, okay, I kind of overegged the pudding when it came to my kid, right? I might have overdone it a little bit, my bad, right? Um, I'm going to need some recuperative time here, possibly many millennia. Uh, that's not what she says, right? She says her life, what was the very careful and neutral thing that she said? Um uh, my life is gone out into Fanaro, right? Um, and so we were asking who who made the choice, right? Who made the choice? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. But if it's a Luvatar, which to me seems to be the number one most reasonable reading of that, then again, Chris, I come back to Indus uh, and this idea of the the linking of the Fea, of the Fear of the two elves, right? That Indus is linked to Finway long before any of them had any idea of the bereavement. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um, very interesting. It's very interesting to me. Um, Alyssa is wondering if this could be one example of a larger phenomenon. There will be those who choose against or are not permitted rebirth. So maybe those in a condition of unrequited love are meant to marry later and become second spouses of the bereaved. I wonder. I wonder. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, Alyssa, when the Valar are looking at the, uh, at the unrequited love situation and saying like, oh man, this is, uh, this is all about the marring of Arda, Right. Maybe they're just not seeing the big picture, right? Maybe the unrequited love that they're seeing is only a seed that has not yet grown yet. Seems possible. I mean, if Indus is any indication, uh, if, if she is, uh, as you suggest, uh, Alyssa, not just uh, an isolated case, uh, but part of a, a not frequently visible trend, right, um, then it's possible. That that kind of thing could be uh, uh, could be could be happening, um, uh, yeah. Now Margaret says this seems like uh, a not so much free will for elves uh, thing. Yeah, I hear you. Um, at the same time, so I, okay, mm. okay, I hear you. Yes, like this sense of destiny, right? But keep in mind. Destiny is true of everybody, right? Like, nobody can change the music in Iluvatar's despite, and that's true of everybody, right? Um, to, to extrapolate from there to say that elves don't have any free will is to absolutely fly in the face of everything the text says, right? I mean, think about all the, all the emphasis that's being given to Muriel's choice, for instance, right? She has to be given the choice whether or not she's going to come back. Um, now, it can be decided for her, Right. Doom can be passed on her and Mandos as judge can say, no way, man, um, life sentence for you. He says that to some, as indeed he's going to say it to Feanor. Um, but uh, uh, but but the, the 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 specter of their choice. Right. Is is clearly present there. Um, so on the one hand, absolutely choice exists, but there's no question. Margaret, you're absolutely right. Th 
fate is also taking a hand, right? Um, but that, I think, is not a difference between elves and men. What I wonder is if it's a difference in how they perceive it, right? Um, that they're, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, more in touch with it, right? Have more of a chance to see it be enacted. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think any of those are quite right, but uh, maybe perhaps you see what I mean. Um, um, yes, yes, Jennifer, exactly. This is not, this is not going to be like a murder mystery, right? And it turned out that, you know, uh, that, uh, that, Indus is somehow to blame for the pouring out of Muriel's life, right? Uh, uh, yeah, no, no, definitely not how it happened. So, but Kevin was asking back on the unrequited love issue. No Meyer ever had unrequited love. No, um, no, no I, that's what that, that's what we're told. Yeah, uh, because so, yeah, because even remember, even marriage among them. Uh, this is, you know, one of the trends that we've seen over the course of Morgoth's ring, right, is uh, Tolkien deciding more and more clearly that marriage among the Valar and Maiar also, presumably, um, is uh, um, metaphorical in a sense, right? They're not really literally married in the same way. Um, they are um, they are like spouses, right? They are partners. They have a particular kind of affinity for each other in partnership, but that affinity can't be like, it's not about like, you know, you look over, you know, at the feast of, uh, of the, you know, the, 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 the celebration of the harvest feast, right? You look over and she looks at you and you really fancy her, but she doesn't really fancy you. Like that's not how the, the relationships among the Maya happen. Right. Um, it's like there's this affinity between the two spirits. They have a kind of partnership in the mind of Iluvatar. Right. Um, even those who don't actually form that partnership don't like meet each other in a sense until uh, within Arda. Remember, there was that question about when Manway and Varda hooked up. Right. Was it before or after they descended into Arda? Um, but um, but yeah. Yeah. So um, uh Yes, yes. <laughs> like four of you are all asking at once about the sex lives of the Valar, and I'm not talking about that. Not because I refuse to talk about it, but because we're not we're not there yet. Um, we're not. We we will get to places where Tolkien is considering more clearly the question of like the bodies and bodily functions of the Valar. So we'll get there, but we're not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna digress onto that yet without any data. Uh, so we'll get there. Yeah. Karita says Mythgard after dark. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> never mind. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I just, it's a startling number of you who are all asking almost all of these <laughs> these same questions all at once. Um, yeah, okay. Um, good. Okay. All right. All right, good. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, a couple of you are bringing up Tyrion. Yep, we'll get there. We will get there. Um, I'll I'll say footnote on Tyrion and his uh, uh, his apparently unrequited pursuit um, of Aryan. All right, the Moon and Sun issue. Remember that that dates from the earlier period, right? That has that has like the the fingerprints of the Book of Lost Tales all over it. Right. It was, in fact, a story from that time when, first of all, they were having kids and doing all sorts of things. Um, uh, that is the Valar and everybody, I mean. Um, but secondly, that ha- that is one of those myths of origin. Right. One of those myths of explanation, as I call them. Right. The um, explaining about why the moon you know, uh, is always hanging around the sun and why, uh, why the, the moon is irregular, uh, in his course compared with the sun and all that kind of thing. Um, so it, it was a myth of explanation, right? Um, and so therefore is doubly removed from this kind of world that we're in now. So we will see how he treats that when we get back around to it, but we're not there yet. Um, okay. Uh, so let's move on to the next slide. Oh yeah, no, sorry. I wanted to. I know I was thinking of those one other thing I wanted to say. Um, Cecilia, I share your suspicion. Cecilia is wondering that it seems like even after his bereavement, um, Indus does not really seem to be trying to, you know, reel Finway in here. Right. Um, her joy at seeing him seems to be completely spontaneous. Uh, I absolutely agree with you, Cecilia. But I share Cecilia's suspicion that perhaps Ingwe is not free uh, from a plan here <laughs> that uh, that uh, he might have known uh, had some benevolent but ulterior motive uh, in his invitation to his friend Finway. Um, I also kind of wonder that. And it, you know, doesn't say firmly one way or the other. And I'm sure he's quite right. Ingwe, that is, is quite right to say that it's going to do Finway a world of good just to get a change of scene and come live among the trees. Right. Um, uh, but, um, you know, uh, is there any element of the matchmaker in Ingwe's invitation? Uh, definitely, I'm not going to rule it out. I'm definitely not going to rule that out. Okay. Um, now, <laughs> at 11.40, let's get around to talking about the Valar here. Okay. It is recorded by the Eldar that the Valar debated long the case of Finway and Muriel after the statute was made, but not yet declared. Remember, 10-year waiting period before we declare the doom. So here's what's happening during that 10 years. Uh, and it may take us 10 years to finish discussing it. <laughs> For they perceived that this was a grave matter and a portent in that Muriel had died even in Amman and had brought sorrow to the blessed realm, things which before ha- they before had believed could not come to pass. That that this this is a news flash for them that sorrow is even possible in Amon, right? It's a really, really big deal. Also, though the statue seemed just, some feared that it would not heal the death of grief, but perpetuate it. And Manway spoke to the Valar, saying, In this matter, you must not forget that you deal with Arda Mard, out of which ye brought the Eldar. Neither must ye forget that in Arda Mard, Justice is not healing. 
Healing cometh only by suffering and patience, and maketh no demand, not even for justice. Justice worketh only within the bonds of things as they are, excepting the marring of Arda, and therefore, though justice is itself good, and desireth, desireth no further evil, it can but perpetuate the evil that was, and doth not prevent it from the bearing of fruit in sorrow. Thus the statute was just, but it accepted death and the severance of Finway and Muriel as a thing unnatural in Arda unmarred. And therefore, with reference to Arda unmarred, it was unnatural and fraught with death. The liberty that it gave, that is the statute, right, was a lower road that, if it led not still downwards, could not again ascend. But healing must retain ever the thought of Arda unmarred. And if it cannot ascend, must abide in patience. This is hope, which, I deem, is before all else the virtue most fair in the children of Eru, but cannot be commanded to come when needed. Patience must often long await it. <sighs> Boy. Uh, deep waters, Manway is opening up here. Deep, deep waters. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Kevin Hensler says, I'm actually really interested here. I knew you would be, Kevin. I was, I was, as I was reading through, I'm thinking like, I'm, Kevin is typing right now as, as, as we're reading. Absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, okay. Yes, you're right, Kevin and Chris, that this is very theologically Christian. Absolutely. Um, and warning, we are going, the second half of Morgoth's Ring contains some of the most explicitly theologically Christian elements of t all of Tolkien's writing. Um, I, I, I would put the second half of Morgoth's Ring and Leaf by Niggle as, you know, two of the most explicitly Christian things uh, that Tolkien ever wrote. Um, uh, just, just <laughs> to make sure that that's open, uh, to everybody. Cause I know, especially if you're not familiar with Christian theology, uh, some of this stuff that he's talking here is, is, is going to be a little bit, um, not, not, not just here in this passage, but, uh, throughout the rest of the book, um, is going to be, uh, perhaps a little bit more opaque. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. Now, Kevin, I agree with you. Well, I think I agree with you. I'm not sure Manway agrees with you uh, that Amon, to what extent is Amon less marred than Middle-earth? Are the Valar fooling themselves about the fact that they are, they still have their little vestige, uh, you know, their little enclave, right, of yet unmarred Arda, right? Um their little unmarred bubble within Arda marred. Um, and, but like Middle Earth is like totally marred, right? Now, on the one hand, Kevin, this helps to explain that mindset, whether or not it's true, helps to explain the invitation, right? Which is, which explicitly Manway refers to here. We invited them out, right? From Middle Earth because we wanted to release them from that. We wanted them to be able to live in, you know, 
the unmarred neighborhood here, not out in the marred bits. But how I, re I read this like you do, Kevin. I think that Arda is marred as well. We kind of know it is, right? We know something that Manway doesn't know here. We know about the darkening of Valinor to come. Um, so I think it's, I think events are going to show that there is plenty of marring still possible, right? Uh, and that uh, Amon is very capable of marring. Um, and I think what they seem to be wrestling with here explicitly. Um, in fact, you could even say that this is one of the biggest sort of subtexts of the entire debate, right? Um, holy cow, emergency meeting. Somebody is sorrowful here in Amon, right? There's unrequited love. There's death and there's death and there's there's bereavement and there's sorrow here in this was not supposed to be happening is in fact amon marred after all right we need to talk this over right that seems to me one of the sort of subtexts right um yeah yeah um yes chris says if it is if it isn't true so if the idea that Arda is unmarred in Amon, right, if that idea is untrue, but they believe that it's true, uh, Chris points out that that explains how sorrow can enter into Valinor and lead to the exile of the Noldor. Exactly. Yes, exactly. It also helps to explain the parole of Melkor, right? And that, like, the, the, the framework within which they make the decisions that they make, right? Um, because they think that it's like a non-issue here, right? Um, uh, yeah, uh, Chris says, I know that Tolkien wants his elvish narrator to deny this, uh, but this text shows him still thinking in this way. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, okay. Um, all right. All right, I'm, this is me like taking deep breaths before attempting to uh, address the whole justice and healing part. Because, who? All right. Neither must ye forget that in Arda Mard, justice is not healing. Justice is not healing. Justice worketh only within the bonds of things as they are. Justice isn't about changing circumstances, right? Justice accepts as a framework the bad, right? Given that evil has happened, how do we rightly deal with it? How do we act for the best under bad circumstances? That's what justice does. There's no need for justice in an unmarred world because, like, it, there's so there's no need for judicial proceedings because that nothing, there is no badness, right? Only if there's badness, only if something has happened which shouldn't happen which is an evil 
in some sense, right? A sorrow has come, right? A, again, some, dealing with bad things. That's why you need justice. That's what justice is for. And so he's saying justice, the, uh, the divorce, right? Uh, the, the, um, the, the statute, which declares that if Muriel still thinks in 10 years that she's definitely staying in Mandos, then um, the marriage is off. That's just, Mandos, or Manway says, right? That's justice. But it's not good. And it doesn't bring healing. It is only a right dealing with bad circumstances. And again, notice how this is kind of an indictment of the un unmarredness of Amon. Right? It's a big deal, right? And so that's what he means when he's going on to say about... Um, uh, so he says, thus the statute was just, but it accepted death and the severance of Finway and Muriel, a thing unnatural in Arda Unmarred. Like, that wouldn't happen, right? Death wouldn't happen, he, he implies, in Arda Unmarred, right? And certainly the whatever happened to Muriel to make her not come back seems also, I would say, in the category of stuff that wouldn't happen in Arda Unmarred, right? Um... So yeah, like that. What happened to to Finway and Muriel is is bad. That that was an evil, right? And we've dealt with it justly. So now everybody can move forward. You know, positively. But it doesn't. This is when you talk about ascending and descending, right? Um, the liberty that it gave—that is, the freedom of Finway to remarry, right? So the liberty granted him by justice is a lower road, lower than not the unmarredness, right? The, the kind of happiness that he should have had, had Arda not been marred, had it not been fraught with death unnaturally, that would have been the higher road, right? Um, justice... So there, there, there are three possibilities, right? One is the theoretical possibility of the, the, the high road, right? The perfect happiness that would happen if Arda had never been marred, right? Well, that's out because the evil thing has happened. Muriel's died, Finway's widowed, and now, um, you know, sorrow has come and we got to deal with it, right? So we've, we're, we're off the top path. So now there are two options left. Do you follow a road that, like, maintains? Or does this evil start a downhill trend, right? So Manway seems to argue that the whole point of justice is to prevent the downhill trend, right? Things are, things are, things are suboptimal, right? An evil has occurred, but it could get worse. The just statute prevents things getting worse. Right. So that's what he means when he says the liberty that it gave was a lower road that if it led not still downwards, could not again ascend. So it, 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 it kept it from going downwards, but it can't go back up to the to the to the it can't be made like it never was. It's not going to be expunged. The grief, the evil, the sorrow. And of course, we see that we see the fruits of that evil right in the difficulties in Finway's family. Right with Theonor and his half brothers. Um, well, with I, yeah, 
fan art, full stop, right? Perhaps. Um, uh, so, and again, he, you see him talking about the bearing of fruit in sorrow, right? Um, so that's just, so justice is a band-aid that you put on a wound, right? To keep it from getting infected, but it can't make it like it never was, right? It's still going to be sore, right? Um, so what is healing then? Justice is not healing. Healing cometh only by suffering and patience and maketh no demand, not even for justice. Healing cometh only by suffering and patience and maketh no demand, not even for justice. That's, um, uh, challenging. I'd love to explain that sentence, but I'm not sure I get it. I'm not sure I'm wise enough for that sentence. I can only give you what I have. I'm not sure I have enough for that sentence. Healing cometh only by suffering and patience and maketh no demand, not even for justice. Then skipping to the bottom, but healing must retain ever the thought of Arda unmarred. And if it cannot ascend, that is, healing still can't get you all the way back up to the unblemished perfection that would have been had the evil not occurred. Right? Healing can't get you there. If it cannot ascend, it must abide in patience. This is hope, which I deem is before all else the virtue most fair in the children of Eru. So what is the superior alternative to justice? Justice can only get you so far. Justice is good, but it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't undo the problem. It just keeps it from getting worse. It helps you to manage and move forward. Healing, though. What is this healing that Muriel thought might come after, or said would only come after Arda, right? Healing must retain ever the thought of Arda unmarred. And if it cannot ascend, it must abide in patience. Healing is hope. Healing is hope. Um... Yeah, Stephen uh, and Kevin are, and Sharon are all hearing echoes of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, Paul's love chapter, the one so uh, frequently quoted with marginal applicability at weddings. Um, uh, I, sorry, I always get a little twitchy when 1 Corinthians 13 is read away. It's not that it's inappropriate at weddings. Like the kind of love that Paul is described, the, the agape described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 is totally essential to a good marriage and everything. Not saying that it isn't. But I am saying that I always get a little twitchy feeling that that passage is being misunderstood. The majority of the time it's being read and heard in a wedding context. But anyway, um, uh, maybe we'll talk about that later. Because actually, I think it'll be a little bit relevant later on. Um, okay. Um, so, the abiding. Abiding in patience. Abiding in patience is hope. 
that's how he's defining hope here. Hope, which Manway deems is before all else the virtue most fair in the children of Eru. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, healing. How, how does healing come about? Justice is not healing. So how do you get healing? Healing cometh only by suffering and patience and maketh no demand, not even for justice. If you are making demands for justice, you're not healing. Remember, justice doesn't fix things. It only helps to minimize the consequences of things, right? Justice doesn't undo anything. When, to quote something with some obvious relevance in these days, when someone is murdered and people want to see justice done for that murder, right? That it's not going to bring anybody back. It's not going to undo the murder, right? It's not to say that justice is doesn't matter. It does matter. It prevents things getting worse afterwards, right? Injustice can make the situation get worse and worse and worse, right? But justice is going to fix it. It's a palliative, to use the medical term, right? Um, that is just like helps you get through the pain, right? It doesn't heal you. Um, it's uh, healing. So how do you heal? Then, as long as you're demanding justice, you're not healing, Manway says, right? Healing comes only by suffering and patience. Um, yes, Jennifer, justice is reactive. Exactly. Um, yeah, so hope, ultimately. That patience, that abiding in patience is hope, he says, in the end. <coughs> Sorry. So, healing and hope are here in this passage intimately connected. Healing comes only by suffering and patience. It is only through suffering that healing can come. And patience in suffering um one of the things that i think he's pointing to here i want to be careful cuz hmm, one of one issue that's i feel kind of floating around here but he hasn't said it and so i'm a little bit reluctant to go there because i don't feel i have full warrant from this text to go there um, is the idea of forgiveness. Um, I can't help but feel that, and several of you have been talking about forgiveness. Um, I can't help but think that in that sentence that I was questioning my wisdom to explain, healing cometh only by suffering and patience and maketh no demand, 
not even for justice. Um, I, I can't help but feel that, at least in part, that sentence is a sentence about forgiveness, but he doesn't talk about forgiveness. Um, that's at least not the angle um, that he's working with here. Um, yeah. Um, let's, let's come back to this. Yeah, we're just about done. I want to do one more slide. Um, we'll come back to Manway's thoughts here when we get to man. Manway's going to come in and give a, a sort of a final summing up at the end. Uh, you know, he's going to give a judicial piece at the end of the debate. Right. And we'll come back to some of these terms and concepts after the debate when he comes back. Um, but uh, anyway, OK, um, let's. Uh, one more slide. At least one of the thou are speaking. Boy, again, not going to apologize for how long this is taking. Uh, this is uh, amazing stuff. Okay. Then Aule, friend of the Noldor, added, and lover of Feanor, spake. So our first speech is from Feanor's defense attorney, Aule. But did this matter indeed arise out of Ardemard? he asked. For it seemeth to me that it arose from the bearing of Feanaro. Now, Finway and all the Noldor that followed him were never in heart or thought, swayed by Melkor, the Marer. How, then, did this strange thing come to pass, even in Amon the Unshadowed, that the bearing of a child should lay such a weariness upon the mother that she desired life no longer? This child is the greatest in gifts that hath arisen or shall arise among the Eldar. But the Eldar are the first children of Eru, and belong to him directly. Therefore, the greatness of the child must proceed from his will directly, and be intended for the good of the Eldar and of all Arda. What, then, of the cost of the birth? Must it not be thought that the greatness and the cost come not from Arda, marred or unmarred, but from beyond Arda? For this we know to be true. And as the ages pass, it often shall be manifest, in small matters and in great, that all the tale of Arda was not in the great theme, and that things shall come to pass in that tale which cannot be foreseen, for they are new and not begotten by the past that preceded them. Added, Thus Aule spake, being unwilling to believe that any taint of the shadow lay upon Feanor, or upon any of the Noldor. He had been the most eager to summon them to Valinor. Okay. Um, Jennifer says poor Aule must have been very disappointed later. Yeah. Uh, and remember that the, the reference to Aule's, Aule's very extreme disappointment in the Noldor and in Feanor later on, right? Um, this, you know, this passage would have been in Tolkien's mind, right, with that, uh, with that passage. So absolutely. Anyway, okay. Uh, so apart from the terrible uh, dramatic irony <laughs> of this passage, right? Uh, I mean, it is painful to uh, read him arguing that no taint of the shadow lies upon Fanor. Um, not yet. Uh, no, maybe not. Uh, if not, it will. Um, 
But um, anyway, okay. Yeah, Matt says, Ali is probably disappointed in several of his followers. It's true. It's true. Uh, uh, Saruman and Sauron also not exactly in Aule's personal Hall of Fame. Um, uh, in fact, Matt, I mean, it's not hard to argue that Aule's following is a is a regular rogues gallery, right? I mean, most of the bad guys uh, come from there. But okay. But anyhow, so George... Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Aule is arguing that Iluvatar caused Muriel's death, right? Um, this is what he means when he says, this is not a question of Arda marred or unmarred, right? This is a question. This is one of the children of Iluvatar, right? Who was it who decreed? the quantity of Fea that Feanor was supposed to get. It wasn't Muriel. And it wasn't anybody else. It wasn't Feanor. It's not Feanor's fault. It was not embryonic Feanor's fault. He didn't choose how much life he was going to get. He was given this. And it's only Iluvatar who could have done the giving. The Eldar are the first children of Eru and belong to him directly. Therefore, the greatness of the child must proceed from his will and be intended for the good of the Eldar and of all Arda. So the greatness of the spirit of Feanor is not a bad thing. It's a gift, right? A gift designed for the good of the Eldar and of all Arda. Now, I don't think that Aule's wrong about this point. Again, it's something that sounds horrible in retrospect, right? I mean, again, this that, that sentence is like dripping with dramatic irony. Um, it's hard not to wince when we hear him say that, but it doesn't change the fact that I don't think he's wrong. Remember, remember that exactly, Mary, um, Feanor misused the gift that he was given. Remember the, the, the mourning of Manwe for the marring of Feanor. Right. This this was a big deal. Aule was certainly mourning as well. Right. Um, I think that they all saw this and believed it to be true. Fanor was given great gifts and great good was in his power to do. He was manifestly, obviously. The chosen vessel of Iluvatar for great things to come. He was chosen for greatness. He's made great for a reason. And that reason, since it was Iluvatar's reason, was a good reason. But of course, see now, Margaret, here we come back to the free will issue, right? Does Fanor have free will? Absolutely. And this is Aule's argument, right? Well, in retrospect, this would be Aule's argument, right? Um, that this gift is given to Feanor, and if he goes bad later, not that Ale is yet foretelling this, but if he were, if he goes bad later, it's not Iluvatar's fault, and it's not because he was predestined to evil, right? It's, he wasn't made marred. The shadow, he was not tainted with the shadow in his conception. He was not an evil embryonic vampire. That's not what he was. He was instead a great gift. But the corollary of that? What about Muriel? Mm. 
Remember his question, Aule's question. How then did this strange thing come to pass, even in Amon the unshadowed? Didn't pick up the shadow here, right? How did this strange thing come to pass? And Aule's answer to that question is, by Iluvatar's will. By Iluvatar's will. Notice that he doesn't only just say that Feanor's greatness comes from beyond Arda. He says, must it not be thought that the greatness and the cost come not from Arda, martyr unmarred, but from beyond Arda. The cost comes from beyond Arda. The cost to Muriel. The cost to Finway. The grief, the death, the separation was doomed. That was Iluvatar's choice. Iluvatar, for reasons best known to himself, chose for this mightiest of all of the Eldar to be born. When he chose that, Iluvatar, he knew what the cost of that would be. And he enacted that choice knowing what the cost would be. That's Aule's argument. Now remember, as we're reading people's, like the Valar's arguments, right, they're not all right. Um, you know, uh, and in the end, Manway is going to explicitly say that several of them are mistaken, right? Um, so just because, that's one of the fascinating things about this debate is that I think we can see, this seems to me like, remember during that last week in the Q&A sec section, when I was suggesting that it's, it felt like Tolkien was hitting a wall, like Manway's state, or not Manway, Mandos's decrees, right? His dooms were really like sort of stilted and awkward and, and fumbling around and banging into walls and stuff. Um, that, that he was, uh, and as we were talking about, it, it seemed like Tolkien wasn't like discovering so much as he was um, trying to articulate things and and fumbling a little bit in trying to do at least that's what it sounds like to me um in this section it feels to me very different right i the impression that i have from reading this text is that this vehicle um this debate among the valar seems to give tolkien's own imagination and sort of um faculty of discovery greater leeway Right, greater um, scope, because um, he here we can see him thinking. One of the problems with Manway, what I would call anyway, a problem uh, with some of those earlier dooms of 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 Mandos from the uh, from the last uh, session. Um, is that we see him like trying to think through both sides of the problem and saying this, oh, but you could say it this way, but then you could also think about it this other way within the one single decree of Mandos. And having Mandos contradict himself like that um, just began to sound weird, right? Um, like Mandos the doomsman, you know, doesn't know one end from the next and, and, and doesn't know how to make up his mind. Here, when he can voice one angle, from one person and then another angle from the other person and then a, th a third response from another person, it seems to let sort of like the discovery of the the truth of the matter really kind of flow out much more naturally. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so Christopher says, hang on a second, if 
if uh, Aule's argument here essentially awards to Feanor free will, what about Muriel? Well, Chris, I would say to that that Muriel is not deprived of free will. The choice to remain in Mandos is still hers. She's given that choice, and I don't think she... I mean, she says, I cannot be healed within Arda. Subject to correction, and ba- and we'll see more as we continue to discuss the later... I think that that's part of her choice. Her reaction there. The circumstances weren't her choice. It appear- apparently. The emptying out of her life... That was a thing that happened to her. That was a thing that happened to her, like having a piano fall on you while you're walking down the street, right? It's, that's not her fault. It's not her choice. But what she does in response to that is her choice. Now, I know she was talking like it wasn't possible. There was no healing for her, right? Unless that's not true. Unless that is her own uh, choice. Jennifer, exactly, yes. It would be a piano that God dropped. Absolutely. That's, that's why I'm using that image, right? Not, not something that has anything to do with a choice of yours. Just whammo, right? Act of God. Um, uh, so, Chris, that would be my immediate response to say that she's not deprived of free will, she is just given a different set of circumstances in which to enact her will, right? The circumstances are not of your choosing, but you get a choice. And her choice was in how to cope with the situation. And we, and to me, this, it's the choice is about hope, right? Remember just looking back for a second. This is hope, which I deem is before all, all else, the virtue most fair in the children of Arrow. Hope is a virtue. It's not a gift. It's not a... Um, it's, 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 it's something that you do. It's connected with choice. You can cultivate a virtue or you can turn against that virtue and reject that virtue and not build that virtue within yourself. You can be patient or you can not be patient. That's a choice. Virtue is about choice. Virtue is connected with choice. You can't have virtue without choice. Virtue without choice is just a state of being, right? But the concept of virtue um, absolutely implies the existence of choice. There's no sense of talking about virtue and vice if there's no such if there's no choice, right? And Manway is characterizing hope this patience and suffering that he's describing as choice, right? Now, we'll see other people. We're going to have to debate all this right now. This will, con- this will come up. Others will talk about this. Nienna's going to have some stuff to say about this, right? Um, and we'll see. Uh, yeah, good. So, uh, yeah, George, I agree. I think that that's exactly how we should look at all of this. Um all of us should keep in mind as uh, if ever anyone 
has a hard time understanding why Tolkien never finished and published The Silmarillion in his lifetime. The experience of trying to complete the discussion of Morgoth's ring in this in these sessions together should give us a first-hand understanding <laughs> of how it is that Tolkien found that, you know, the uh, you know, the 15 years he had remaining to him, he didn't know it was 15 at the time, of course, but that the 15 years he had remaining to him were not sufficient uh, for him to do all to do all this stuff. Um, but um, anyway, OK, on that note, uh, we will continue this experience of, uh, uh, you know, not finishing the Silmarillion together next week uh, when we return uh, to uh, to the uh, uh, to the debate uh, and we'll see how far we can get into the debate and maybe even towards Manway's concluding remarks uh, if we're very if we're very very fortunate yeah exactly Christopher Zeno strikes again not sure we even got so far as Zeno this time but anyway uh, uh, so it is. All right. Thank you guys so much. This has been, um, um, <laughs> this has been wonderful. Uh, and I look forward to continuing our unrushed, unhurried and unguilty discussions next time. Thanks everybody. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.